This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. We are on episode three of Orwell's classic fairy story, in quotations, or uh, an allegorical novella, Animal Farm. And although the book is extremely short, it is compact and full of political satire, which is what makes it interesting. On week one, we spent most of the episode looking at Orwell's life and history, his perspective of the world and how that was formed. In week two, we considered the book as a political allegory on the country of Russia, specifically in the context of the Russian Revolution and the transition into the Soviet Union. We didn't get very far into the story, only through chapter three, but we focused on who each character on the farm was supposed to represent uh, through an almost direct allegorical correlation to a person in real life. Today, we're going to change directions and discuss the book in much broader terms while also discussing through Chapter 7. That's correct. Today, we want to talk about the book as satire. Now, satire, when we use that word, we're talking about a literary work that is trying to expose human vices or follies and scorn or ridicule us in some way. So what does that mean? It means that a person who is writing satire is trying to get you to see something about yourself or the world that you live in that the satirist thinks is wrong and you're missing. So he's kind of trying to hold up a mirror and distort it in such a way that you see it in the way that he sees it. Let me put it this way. The satire looks at something wrong, but he believes that you're so used to seeing the world, you can't notice what's really wrong in it. So he's just going to highlight that flaw for you so you can't overlook it anymore. In some ways, satire serves the same purpose as a sermon in church. The satire is moralizing in a sense. It's opinion. The reason satirists use humor as much as they do is kind of obvious because no one likes to be criticized. And if you can laugh at it, just maybe you'll take that criticism a little more seriously. Ha ha, irony. So uh, you're less likely, in, in a sense, to be offended if I'm making you laugh than if I'm just lecturing you. We do this in America uh, on TV all the time. If you've seen a show like Saturday Night Live, South Park, even The Simpsons, they're trying to satirize or blow up or make fun of things and that they think are serious in our world that we don't actually think about. We have websites like The Onion and Babylon Bee that make up news stories that are fake, designed to be totally fake, trying to get you to see something ridiculous about the way 
that we're we're, we're blah, that we're living our lives. But remember, it's always perspective, and it's always by design, designed to be an opinion. So then, the question becomes: How to do it? That's right. How do you do it? There are tons of techniques that satirists use, and we want to talk about these because Orwell uses all of them, even though. This book isn't necessarily, hee hee, ha ha, I want to fall over joke funny like I'm a comedian. Ever. <laughs> no, but it isn't heavy. It's it's called Horatian satire. It's designed to be kind of light. The farm keeps it a little bit light. The same way that Jonathan, Jonathan Swift did in Gulliver's Travels when he made Little People. It's supposed to be light, even though you're talking about something very serious. But the techniques that he uses are the same techniques that you see on TV or on satirical websites. He's going to use things like burlesque and caricature, puns and malaproposes and jargon and irony and hyperbole, defamiliarization, satire, and there's a lot more. But I want to look at some of these that he's going to use over and over in this book and see just how he's using them, but more importantly, why he's using them. What's the big idea about life that he's criticizing in this book, in particular, these middle sections. And in Orwell's case, he begins the whole thing, the whole satire begins before the book even starts with the title. As you remember, the original title had a subtitle, Animal Farm, a fairy story. Now let's think about that in terms of a satire. What is a fairy tale? Well, it's a magical story. It's idealized. Everyone knows that. It ends with a happy late, happy ever after that everyone knows can't possibly come true. We all know that fairy tales are not designed to be real. So what has Orwell done? Here we see irony and hyperbole because this is not a fairy tale in most sense. Of course, it's magical because there's animals that are talking. But what is he saying? He's trying to say that the socialists want you to believe in this fairy tale. They want you to believe that it's true, but it's not. It's a fairy tale. It's a lie. What they are telling you can happen, it's just a fairy tale. It's a dream. It's a fantasy. And not only that, but it ends poorly for anyone who believes in it. It ends poorly for anyone who believes them or trusts them at all. That's why this subtitle is dripping with irony. This book is the opposite of a dream, and the word irony means opposite. This book is a nightmare, and if you believe in this dream, you are a flat fool. So what are we going to do? Let's drop back into the middle portion of this book, because here, Orwell is not subtly, but very kind of obviously saying that only the dumbest of blind fools are going to allow themselves to be victimized in the way that I'm just about ready to describe to you. This middle section of the book really is an expose on the power and the technique of propaganda. What we see here are the pigs emerging as the leaders on the farm. They take over. They're trusted with leadership because everyone believes they're the most responsible, they're the smartest, and then they spend the rest of the book, the rest of their time, exploiting everyone else. And how does this happen? Primarily through the use of something we're going to call propaganda. So let's jump back and talk about satire just for one minute. We said that satire is when you're trying to criticize something you're blowing something up that you think people are blind to. So how the satire is going to work here, in large part, we're going to see it through hyperbole, defamiliarization, and dramatic irony. Hyperbole is when you exaggerate for the purpose of making a point. Defamiliarization is when you describe something that everyone should recognize, but you explain it in a way that they don't, that you act like they don't recognize it, or maybe the characters in the story don't recognize it. And of course, dramatic irony is when the reader of the story knows what's going on, but the characters don't. They're oblivious. And in this book, what is going to become painfully obvious to the reader is that the characters don't know that they're being lied to, they're being tricked, they're being exploited, and they're being enslaved. So Gary... What exactly is propaganda and what is going on in the real world that parallels what we see happening in Animal Farm? Well, first of all, 
I love the study of propaganda. Uh, it's a favorite branch of psychology of mine. Uh, I love the uh, the whole field of social psychology, which had emerged before World War II, but after World War II becomes a full-blown thing. So I do want to say a few things about that, but I want to pick this up about Orwell before we move on. Uh, we're living in a time period where Animal Farm is 70 years old. The prophecies of Orwell about the Soviet Union were proved true. The Soviet Union collapses in 1991. So we, on this side of history, are accepting his book for what it is. But you have to keep in mind that he was warning people. He, he felt like they did not see the menace in 1943. And he's one of the very first people to, uh, to sound the alarm bell about the Soviet Union and, their, and what they plan to do in Stalin. So we want to remember that's who he was at his time period. So he really was a prophet. Well, and in some sense, before you jump into the historical parallels, he's still a prophet because although we can look back and say, I would never have done that, I would never have been so stupid, it's quite possible that we are actually living our same stupidity, not just in our own political context, but you can do it in your personal context as well. These strategies are just not that difficult to implement if you trust somebody. They, you're correct. And what's fascinating is that you don't have to be the Soviet Union. You don't have to be Nazi Germany. Any totalitarian government innately, without even thinking about it, adapts all these techniques and employs them on the people that they're wanting to rule. The government form is irrelevant. But anytime you have that dictatorial uh, concentration of power, these behaviors emerge on, the heart, on behalf of the government. And one thing that we're not really going to talk about it unless we just go off on a tangent at some point, but we're not planning to talk about it is I think obviously we are misled just in a commercial sense. I mean, <laughs> like well, people use a lot of these things to sell us stuff all the time and we are the biggest suckers in a lot of ways. <laughs> that's a great segue into talking about propaganda because all of us experience propaganda. If you have ever watched a TV commercial and went out and bought the product, you were successfully worked <laughs> by propaganda. The whole advertising industry's sole reason for existence is propaganda. I mean, seriously, how many cookies do you need to eat in your lifetime? That doesn't matter because cookie manufacturers are going to hire people to tell you, you need more cookies. That's true. So <laughs> that's how that works. And, you know, as a general concept, propaganda can be defined as information, especially of a biased or a misleading nature. It's used to promote or publicize a particular political political cause a lot of times or, or a political point of view. And obviously our world is full of it and we're extremely used to seeing it. And like the animals on Animal Farm, we're becoming a little bit tone deaf to it. For example, if, if I want to sell you potato chips, I might describe potato chips as sugar-free and a vegetable. And although both of those things are true, it's misleading. Um, I've made them sound almost like a diet food. You should never eat potato chips for the purposes <laughs> of dieting and losing weight. Because in this case, what I am not saying is that they're fried, full of cholesterol, and they're a carbohydrate. Going to work against your purposes. But anyway, in, in my example, I'm not even lying. And what we're going to see is that lots of propaganda starts misleading, but it goes farther and farther till it reaches the point of just lies. It, historically, of course, um, it, Hitler and the Nazi regime stuns the world with this masterful use of propaganda. There's even uh, in Nazi Germany an entire government ministry devoted to this, this creation of the propaganda. There were filmmakers whose job was to make Nazi films promoting Hitler the whole time. So endless, uh, endless stream of uh, propaganda being handed out through that government agency. But anyway... Um, we're going to find out that Stalin was just as good, had different techniques, but just as effective. Uh, and, and what we see in Animal Farm is that once he fools you long enough to get to change around you, he tries less and less to lie and just makes you submit. So uh, let's take a look. In a historical sense, the propaganda strategies that the communists used started with Lenin, uh, or in our book, Old Major. And one thing you have to remember about propaganda is that it relies on you turning off the logical part of your brain. The propagandist wants you to act emotionally, not logically. So every one of these strategies is meant to short-circuit your thinking process and get you to react emotionally rather than logically. So 
Back to Old Major. What did he do, the propagandists do? Well, number one, he's going to introduce slogans. You can't be a good propagandist or totalitarian without slogans. Okay, And what do slogans do? They're short little phrases that everyone can remember that makes us feel something. All men are evil. All animals are comrades or examples of that. Uh, he also introduces this idea of flag waving. Flag waving is the use of patriotism as a way of getting people to kind of line up and do what you want. Now, he teaches everyone Beasts of England, their theme song. And what you're going to see is that they will sing this song every week until Napoleon has totally taken over total control in Chapter 7, and he doesn't need it anymore. Flag waving, by the way, is a strategy that every country does, especially in times of war. And I'm not trying to say it's bad uh, to be patriotic because it's not bad at all. Everyone should feel pride in their country and work to make it as great a place as they possibly can. Uh, that's what the, the least that we can do. That's what most of us do. And love of country is something that is, is a good thing, but it can be manipulated and people can use our love of country against us. And we're going to see this is definitely the case on Animal Farm and was definitely the case in world history at that time period. The third thing that Old Major does, which might go unnoticed, is he uses the strategy we call plain folks. The plain folks propaganda strategy is when a leader says he's just like you when he's clearly not. We see politicians do this all the time. Running for office, they put on their blue jeans and they go out and they get their picture taken in a fast food restaurant. Uh, they're on a farm or in a factory uh, when really in real life they're millionaires who've never done a day's work of physical labor in their lives. But they want you to believe that they can identify with you. And honestly, I want to throw this point in too. They're not completely manipulative because the voters want to feel like they can identify with you also. So it's a, it's a two-way street that allows propaganda to work. Anyway, uh, so Old Major is the elite on the farm. He's described as a prize-winning boar. He's over 12 years old. He's sired over 400 piglets, yet he speaks as one of the people. He's going to claim, I can identify with you, and I'm one of you, and this is a trick that pigs do for the rest of the book. Because they never, ever think that they're just one of the animals. No, there's always an elitist ideology in their background, always. Well, now that we have a general idea of what propaganda is and how it works, let's open the book back up to Chapter 3. I know that's a bit of a back um, track, uh, but let's just kind of see how Orwell unfolds this story through the obvious Russian use of propaganda at the time. First of all, we have the pigs. We talked about that. They don't actually work. They supervise because they have superior knowledge. They're, they're brain workers. <laughs> they're brain workers. We see Boxer with his slogan. There's your slogan word again. I will work harder. And then later on, it's going to emerge. Napoleon is always right. We see the slogans and the flag wavings, and, and they start this with the hoisting of the green flag on Sundays, the meetings, where everyone gets their instructions for the week, but it always ends with the singing of the song, Beast of England. We also see a maxim emerging that Snowball introduces, and when he says, four legs good, two legs bad. This is another technique called repetition, which seems kind of simple, but actually is extremely effective, and which is why if you watch television, you see the same ads over and over and over and over. The idea is the more you hear something, the less likely you are to question whether it's true or not. And it's why advertisers pay for you to see it many, many, many times, and the more you repeat something, the more likely it is to seem to be true. And of course, if we sit and think about that, that makes no sense. But remember that propaganda is 100% designed to short-circuit your logical thinking process. It's supposed to shut down your thinking and let me tell you what you should think. In Chapter 4 of Animal Farm, of course, Mr. Jones has run off to the other farms, and we see the animals trying to spread their philosophy to the animals on the other farms via the pigeons, which, of course, is a natural thing. I would have done that, too. Uh, this is the Russians' attempt to spread communism all over the world, and we saw this, of course, in real life. The song Beast of England starts floating around other farms, and the other farms get nervous. They try to fight back with their own propaganda. They spread rumors about how on animal farm animals are practicing cannibalism, but they also shut down anyone 
for singing Beast of England. Of course, we saw America and England try to shut down any kind of communist threat. Well, it's famous, um, the spread of communism in many ways, which we can't get into now. But the big deal in Chapter 4 is the Battle of Cowshed, which, of course, this is when the other farmers try to take back Animal Farm for Mr. Jones. But they're fought off by the animals. I do want to note that Boxer is a good guy. And even in this defensive posture of trying to protect his, quote, homeland, he feels bad when he hurts a human. He never wants to hurt anyone. And that's something we're going to see throughout the whole story and something that's going to be exploited, of course. But Gary, before we go back to propaganda, what is the Battle of Cowshed in actual history, in case anybody's interested in that? <laughs> we want to draw the parallel. Yeah. Well, sure. sure. And, and we could go deep into this, but we don't have time to. But, of course, this is the famous Russian Civil War. As the book goes on, it's going to become totally, really obvious that Mr. Frederick is supposed to be representative of Germany. Mr. Pilkington is supposed to be representative of the British and the Americans. And now that we know about this period of time is that the Germans are fighting the British and Americans, and after the revolution, the Germans kind of shouldered the Russians out of the war. What we have is the last remnants of the anti-Bolsheviks, the White Army, trying to fight the communists, the Red Army. The White Army is kind of what is left of landowners, middle class people, monarchists, uh, that sort of group. And they're really no match for the gigantic working class represented by the Bolsheviks or the Red Army. So by 1922, the Civil War was over and the Soviet state is established. So I guess when I read this, of course, it's expressed like two countries invading the farm. But what really happened is this is all happening internally inside of Russia in real life. I do like that quote, though, when it says this, the most terrifying spectacle of all was Boxer rearing up on his hind legs and striking out with his great iron shod hoofs like a stallion. Kind of meaning, you know, the working class is so big, what's left of the little bitty middle class doesn't have a chance. Yes, and all that the old guard could do is what Molly did, and that's run away. Um, another thing that happened in the Russian Civil War that is accurately depicted and highlighted in Animal Farm is that Trotsky, or Snowball, emerges as a military hero. That's kind of a big deal, and that's a problem that Stalin will have to deal with. In real life, Stalin was appointed the general secretary of the Communist Party, which Lenin actually regretted doing. He uses his position to make himself a political force and oust Trotsky completely. In Animal Farm, we see this through the argument over the windmill. The windmill, depending on whose opinion you want to read, could represent the spread of communism itself, or it could represent the industrialization uh, or the industrial revolution that they wanted to bring to the Soviet Union. I tend to see it more as the industrialization, but either way, what we see is that Napoleon and Snowball are constantly arguing over the plan and the method, and everyone else is just watching. So Napoleon clearly wants to take charge. Yes, but I will say that Snowball does get his shout-out, and he gets uh, a military decoration, animal hero, First class, which is something that's going to have to change over the course of time. When he as becomes well. <laughs> no longer useful for propaganda, yes. And brings us back to chapter five and our discussion on propaganda. I was going to save this for next week, but I, I think it might be better to bring it up now. People actually disagree as to who is the protagonist in this book. Now, you have to remember the protagonist is the main character. It's not the hero. And this is not a hero story. We're not supposed to see any of these people as heroes. But who is the main character of the book? If you think that this book is primarily about Napoleon, so if Napoleon is the main guy and this is a book about Stalin or a totalitarian, total, that's hard to yeah, say, a totalitarian a lot, a lot of leader and how he rises to power, then the climax of this book is going to take place in chapter five. Because remember, the climax is when the protagonist does something and there's no going back after that to the previous state of affairs. So what we see in this story uh, as the climax is going to happen in chapter 5. If you look at this book as the protagonist being Boxer or the people themselves, then it's going to come in chapter 9, which is later on. We'll talk about that then. It's a nice way to me to look at it one way and then look at, at it 
a different way. And if you have to write a paper on this, by the way, that might be a tip. That's something you could write There you go. You could Compare those on. two points. But for now, let's think of this book as being about Napoleon or any other totalitarian leader trying to dominate the world, dominate his community, maybe even dominate one other person. Because in this chapter, Napoleon is going to seize total control and he's going to use propaganda techniques to do it. So in chapter five, as you've always, well, you've already stated, Molly completely runs off. She's out. The sheep are full on bleeding, four legs good, two legs bad, nonstop slogans. And of course, sheep are stupid idiot animals in almost every story you'll ever read, including almost, well, I don't want to say that. But anyway, (laughs) sheep are dumb and they're easily manipulated and they don't even try to think for themselves. So if you do... if you notice this, every time Snowball tries to say something, the sheep on cue are going to blurt out, four legs good, two legs bad. This, of course, is something that we see happening a lot today in political discourse. If the other side is making some sort of cogent argument that you don't want anybody to hear, just get some protesters to go out and scream and bleed out vacuous nothing accusations. Or you can do this on Twitter or digitally. Just bleat out sheep light slogans over exists. and over and over again. And the idea is your bleeding of these slogans or just short phrases or just unreasoned discourse is going to block out any possibility of reasonable, complex discussion. We do need to introduce what I think is the most powerful tool here. And that's fear. Now, in the real world, fear can mean a couple of things. And it means a couple of things in this story, too. Ultimately, it's Napoleon's use of terror and fear that just seals his control over the farm. Snowball is obviously a much more eloquent speaker. Even though what he all talks about, if you were going to think about it, may or may not be true. He talks about electricity. It's just such a lovely dream. And actually, in real life, he did talk about electricity. But anyway, he's talking about this windmill. And this windmill is going to make life wonderful. It's going to make a three-day work week. And we're going to all have ease and utopian existence. And Napoleon just can't compete with that. But he has one ace in the hole that Snowball doesn't have. He took those puppies and they're loyal to him, and he's been training them. At, and at this point, when he sees that he's actually going to lose the discourse or the political discussion war, he launches a full-on attack on Snowball. I mean, violently. He had, literally attacks him. He runs him off, and at that point, it may or may not look like a propaganda strategy. It looks like just mean violence. But... That's a technique in and of itself, because when you see something bad happening to somebody else, you're filled with terror. Oh, you're exactly right, because you're thinking you could be the next victim. Uh, and the the puppies, of course, it's an obvious representation of the KGB or the Russian secret police. Now, they were known as the NKVD and other designations, but for the the long-term picture, they're the KGB. They terrorized people internally inside the country and externally. And this use of terror obviously is extremely effective. It's not the only way to use fear, though. Fear can be used psychologically as well as physically, and I'm going to mean like psychologically in your mind, you're made afraid of things that may or may not be Real, And we see Napoleon doing this again in chapter five through this character of Squealer, this voice box, because the voice box Squealer is going to be used to scare the animals into submission for the rest of the book. Now, you've talked about me living in um, the Soviet Union. And one of the souvenirs that I brought back was uh, edition or just a version of the newspaper Pravda, that word for truth, and we have a copy of it. We may post a picture of it on the Instagram if you want to take a look at it uh, on our living room wall. 
because I'd always heard about it all my life and I couldn't believe it actually existed when I said, oh my gosh, they really do have a newspaper called Pravda. <laughs> and Pravda was Squealer. The government would just like publish random crap in the paper and the title of the paper was Truth because that's what Pravda meant. But nothing in the paper was actually true at all. It was just all garbage that people wanted you to believe. And anything that Squealer says is something that you probably shouldn't believe. We haven't highlighted Squealer's role so much, but it's been there um, already in the book. And that's obviously a good name for him. He squeals, which makes him sound irritating. He also hops back and forth, which is just kind of funny. But we see him doing here in this chapter what all propaganda people do. And you're going to see several things. First of all, he is going to rewrite history. And we see him doing this. He's going to say, uh, Snowball is a criminal. We all know he's no better than a criminal. By the way, that's bandwagon. When you say something that we all do this, we all like this, and then you don't, well, you think you should. Well, if everyone else does, they should too. But he says, Snowball, who, as we know, was no better than a criminal, he fought bravely at the Battle of Cowshed, said somebody. And Squiller's going to say, bravery's not enough. Loyalty and obedience are more important. And as to the Battle of Cowshed, I'll believe the time will come when we shall find that Snowball's part in it was much exaggerated. So he's just kind of like going to rewrite what ha- actually happened at that battle. And then he says this. This is where we get to the fear part. One false step and our enemies would be upon us. Surely, comrades, you do not want Jones back. And this, of course, is the one thing that they know that they don't want. They don't want Jones back. He's the one they're really scared of. Which is interesting because they're going to be put in a situation soon where they have to decide, are they more afraid of Jones or are they more afraid of Animal Farm, which is ultimately what will happen. And I want to say this about rewriting history. There's a word for that. It's called revisionism. And anytime I say that R word, I almost need to spit. So it's it's a foul word. Revisionism is basically when you take history and you rewrite it to support a political point of view that you have instead of looking at the holistic picture of a historical event, you're using it for your own propaganda purposes. The psychological term for this is gaslighting, and people do it all the time. And the problem Napoleon had was that Snowball was a war hero, and that has to be changed. So here we're going to see the commonly practiced propaganda technique called assertion. That's when you just say something so strongly, you make it true by the authority of your assertion. And Squealer says... Snowball, as we now know, was no better than a criminal. Well, of course, nobody knew that to be true, but he says it so emphatically that it must be true. And he also represents the government. So the voice of the government is now saying he's a bad person. And we're going to see all these techniques just kind of go on simultaneously throughout the whole chapter and really throughout the whole book. Because on these same pages where you see him gaslighting people and rewriting history and using fear they're still continuing to have these ceremonies and every sunday they're going to get up and they're going to get the skull of old major that's now clean that's kind of like the body of linen and they're going to erect it and they have the the flagstaff and they're going to have the gun and now of course um, they don't sit together, by the way. Notice this. The pigs sit separate. Napoleon was squealer and another pig named Minimus, who had a m- remarkable gift for composing songs and poems, sat on the front of the raised platform with the nine young dogs forming a semicircle around them. And the rest of the ma- animals are going to sit facing uh, the other uh, animals. We're going to see also that they... Before, we didn't talk a lot about this so much, but Napoleon and Snowball, where they're arguing about who's going to be in control, it's really over this idea of the windmill. And Napoleon rewrites whose idea it was to have the windmill. And by the end of chapter five, he's saying it was my idea to have the windmill. And Snowball is a dangerous character and a bad influence, which is another technique called scapegoating. When you say that, One person is all bad, and they're to blame for everything that's bad that's happened. Now, so we're back to fear. I want to get back to this. Um, When he says, we don't want Mr. Jones to come back, Boxer, that's really the only thing 
that he does know. And this kind of discussion or this kind of line shuts down any argument because that's the only thing that they really know to be true. And when he says that, Boxer says, well, I guess I'm just going to have to work harder. The idea being in Boxer's mind, the harder I work, the less likely Mr. Jones is to come back. By the end of chapter five, Napoleon is kind of rewriting the history of the windmill completely. He's never been opposed to it. Snowball is a dangerous character. Boxer's confused, and he just reduces everything down to, well, I'm going to work harder, which is what Napoleon wants to think, wants him to think. This technique plays on cognitive dissonance. And uh, I want to talk about cognitive dissonance for a moment because it's a great social psychology term. And to give you an easy working uh, definition of it, it's, it's the idea that we hold beliefs and attitudes uh, or thoughts which are different. We experience dissonance. Uh, that is, we, we feel an inconsistency in our thoughts and in our actions. And when we experience that inconsistency, it brings discomfort. So we're motivated to reduce this discomfort and state by either changing our thoughts and beliefs or attitudes or only really paying attention to information that supports one of our beliefs and we're going to ignore the other. So um, dissonance occurs when there are difficult choices or decisions uh, or it occurs when people participate in behavior that's contrary to their feelings and emotions and attitudes. So what I hear you saying is, you know, for Boxer, he doesn't want to go back and revisit the idea that he made a mistake by supporting Napoleon or by overthrowing Mr. Jones or all this is a bad idea. I've gotten myself into something that's dangerous or at least negative. So he's just going to pretend that that's not so like disassociate himself for anything that would support that and just reduce it to something that I can do, I can believe that doesn't hurt my feelings, that lets me live where I am at this moment in peace. And in his case, ah, I'm just going to work harder. Yes, it's uh, it's a very common human behavior. So you make an enormous mistake. You believe in the wrong side. You're left with two choices. You have to determine I was stupid and I therefore have to take responsibility to change my course and correct it. Or no, the others are stupid. And uh, a lot of people will choose the other people being stupid and wrong. And they'll find a way to smooth it over in their minds, just like Boxer has done. And let me bring it back to satire for a moment. By this point in the book, a reader is supposed to be really angry. Through the use of dramatic irony, everyone reading knows that the animals are being exploited and being treated horribly. This is Orwell saying, see... This is what's going on in real life, and you can't see it. So that's the parallel. This is what I'm blowing up for you to be able to see. You're being lied to by people in authority. You're being gaslighted. Your patriotism is being used against you. These slogans, these nonsensical bleeding of protests to shut down dialogue, don't you see? This is a real world. People are rewriting your past. They're rewriting your history books. They're rewriting your recent memory. And he's saying this. You live on Animal Farm, you dumb horse. Stop saying Napoleon is always right. Whoever you're listening to, consider the fact that you need to revisit who you should be trusting or who should you be listening to. Chapter 6 opens up with this phrase. All that year, the animals worked like, like slaves. The truth is, the reader knows, but by chapter 6, the animals are are slaves. And this is another fascinating psychological insight. When you are being abused, there is a point where you have to decide the responsibility to choose differently is on me and I have to make these changes. And at that point, it's too late for the animals. So uh, in chapter six, we do see strong historical parallels with Stalin's first decisions as leader of the Soviet Union uh, to do what he called the five-year plans, which is government-organized planning of the economy. Uh, the first one started in 1928. The plan was to modernize the country and catch it up to the rest of the Western world. And, of course, everyone wanted that. However, going hand-in-hand hand with that was his decision to collectivize the farms. 
and agriculture. He thought he could increase production by moving to large-scale farms operated by the government and bringing all the peasants under his control to work there. Basically, this meant that everyone would be working for the government, and once you do that, the government did what we all know people naturally do with no competition. They squeezed the people for more work and less money. And, of course, I want to say this. That's not all that different from the serfdom they had just experienced. Well, the Soviets did not move very far away from the old czarist traditions. They just simply changed the people in charge. So instead of having serfs and little kings, they had one big Napoleon king, and everyone was operating under that. Stalin put a lot of people to death to go along with his farm collectivization. So anyway... Uh, what's going to happen is the quality and the quantity of services are going to take a nosedive. By 1931, Russia was living in a famine, and millions of Russian peasants died. This also affected the next-door country of the Ukraine. Stalin did little to help the people, and it was truly horrible. And, Christine, this is something that you actually saw a little bit of when you went to Kazakhstan. So tell us about this collectivist living and what you saw when you went there. Well, remember, when I went there, it was actually kind of disintegrating, but very much the structure. 92, the year after the collapse. Yeah, but still the structure, uh, the things that I remember were very much in place. I can remember going down the street. Well, first of all, there wasn't enough food. I don't. There was never enough food. And we would have to divide up as a group. There were six of us in our group, and we would have to divide up because... Each store only sold one thing, and they were all painted white, and they had stencils with black leathers that told you what they would sell. So you'd have to stand in one line outside in the cold to get bread. Then you'd have to go to another store to get eggs or dairy. They may have sold a couple things and butter in one store. Then you'd have to go to a different store to get meat if you were going to do that. So we would all have to, in the middle or in the morning before school, decide what are you going to go get. And I might stand in the bread line and another person would stand in another line. And by the end of the day, we'd have our food for the day. Now, I will say that the quality, there is no such thing as quality control when you have <laughs> one store and he only sells one type of bread. And we called it brick bread because it was really, really hard. I remember one time we threw it against our wall and made a dent in the wall and it didn't dent the bread. So you have, first of all, inferior quality because there's just no motivation for anybody to make anything. You also didn't have any incentive to sell anything. I remember we wanted to buy a cassette tape. Now, I know that's dating me a bit, but we wanted to... back in the 90s. I know. We wanted to make a tape for our family. I don't remember why. So it took us a long time, like a week. We had to ask around, and you have that's how you found out anything in, in the old Soviet Union. You never There was never advertisement. You would ask a person who would ask a person and ask a person who knew her cousin, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we found a place where they had cassette tapes. So we went over there, and we could see it. It was full of cassette tapes. And, th- and we asked to buy one. They're like, no. Like, no. <laughs> the customer was not always right? No, he didn't care. I was like, please. He goes, no, I, don't, I just don't want to. I'm just, no. I, I said, what are you going to do with all of them? He goes, I don't know. I'm just supposed to take, take care of them. I don't care. And I couldn't believe that he would not sell. This happened when we went to a restaurant. I remember one time we went to a restaurant. They would whimsically let you in or not. Super nice restaurant. And we had tons of money because their money was just so devalued. So we were trying to take advantage and go to a really nice restaurant. We went to the restaurant, and the guy at the door, the maitre d', said, we're full. And we looked in, and there's like three or four people in there. And we're like, but you're not full. He goes, yes, we're full. And the idea is they didn't want to cook a lot. And (laughs) they didn't. We were explained to this later. You know, that they had, ah, we don't want to cook more than four. Because they weren't making any money. If they sold two dishes or if they sold 50 dishes, that's all it mattered. It made no difference to them. So, you know, they didn't necessarily sometimes they would let us eat we'd go we try all the time we'd, we'd have five or six places that we would try to go to and see if any of them would let us in so this ends up being the world where there is no incentive for anyone to do anything the only thing that you could really count on is of course the emergence of the black market which is not necessarily illegal in the sense that you're selling drugs and stuff but you're selling things on a free market and allowing people uh, to um, to a, buy and sell at will. A parallel economy yeah. emerges. So here you go. By the time I get to the USSR, the curtain has fallen. Uh, things are improving, 
But what we saw of things that had been portrayed in the past were not the things that the West this whole time thought was going on behind that Iron Curtain because Stalin and the Russian government spent a lot of effort trying to make us think that things were really good back there, that people were prospering and living and having good lives. Well, of course you didn't know, and that was intentional, and something Orwell showcases in Animal Farm. In Chapter 7, what we have is Orwell's representation of the shortages of supplies in Russia. But what we also have is Stalin's deliberate attempt to conceal this from the outside world. Propaganda is now full-on, unadulterated deceit. And I'm not trying just to slant things to my point of view. I'm totally lying about reality. We see this with the empty bins of food. Whimper, this guy from the outside world, which is an interesting name, by the way, is taken around Animal Farm and shown bins of food that don't actually have grain in them. They have sand in them and just a little bit of grain on top because no one wants the outside world to know that they're starving. By Chapter 7, life on Animal Farm is truly horrible. Chapter 6 is awful and a culmination of every propaganda technique Orwell could find that he could just fit in. And he juxtaposes it with some of the most horrific expressions of violence you could ever put into a short chapter. Exactly. And what we had in actual real history were the Great Purges. Uh, This took place between 1936 and 1938. Stalin executed or sent to the gulag labor camps. Anyone he thought was a threat, and that ended up being quite a lot of people. He had these things people have called the Moscow show trials, which is kind of what we're seeing here in Animal Farm. Most experts say that the number was upward of 750,000 people brutally murdered with over a million sent to gulags, and those are guesstimates. Well, on the farm, the issue is that Napoleon wants to sell the chickens eggs and they don't want to give up their babies, obviously. They try to rebel and when when they do, they're starved. And that's when we start seeing more propaganda. Snowball is said to be coming around the farm and everything that's bad that's happening on the farm is blamed on Snowball. Now we're back to scapegoating. Everything is one person's fault. Once it's determined that everything is supposed to be Snowball's fault, it doesn't matter what happens. If something bad happens, somehow it's going to get to Snowball. Squealer is clearly going to establish this fear technique uh, when he says that, Oh my goodness, comrades, a most terrible thing has been discovered. Snowball has sold himself to Frederick of Penchfield Farm who is even now plotting to attack us and take our farm away from us. So we're going to see in this chapter where, and it's kind of sad, that the animals are thoroughly frightened. And he's going to say, We had thought that Snowball's rebellion was caused by his vanity and ambition, but we were wrong, comrades. Do you know what the real reason was? Snowball was in league with Jones from the very start. He was Jones' secret agent all the time. And it's all been proven by documents, which we have left behind and which we have only just discovered. So here we go. We have a culmination of rewriting history, of scapegoating, of fear-mongering. All of these things are going on. And this chapter is just sad. There's so much bloodshed. There's so much sadness. Boxer is sad. He looks at all this in despair. But then again, he is going to draw all the wrong conclusions. And only the outside reader is able to see this. This is cognitive dissonance. For example, the solution to all these complex problems is I will work harder. What abuse people say themselves is this, if only I had done more. Uh, I'll work harder, but the exploiter, as we will see, will do everything he can to keep you in line of thinking at this point in the story. Napoleon has complete control, and he's not even trying to perpetuate a dream anymore. He's abolished the beautiful song, Beasts of England, and replaced it with this song that sends a totally different message. Animal farm, animal farm, never through me shalt thou come to harm. 
We see it. That's a whole different message than the other one. It is. We've seen a definite shift. The beginning of Beasts of England was about promoting the group of all animals to equality. Now, the new phrase is only about promoting the state and its power. Well, that takes us through chapter seven. By chapter eight, it is clear, even maybe even to some of them, that their world has changed. And they're in trouble. Hmm. Well, we'll check out more of that later on. But today, we really spent a lot of time summing up the power of propaganda and how it's used. And we want to go over again, in case you didn't catch it, the slogans, the, well, the techniques, slogans, flag waving, plain folks, name calling, scapegoating, assertion, bandwagon, repetition, history revision or rewriting, and most importantly, fear. These are the techniques most commonly used to get you to react emotionally and not logically to the world that you're living in. Any final thoughts on that? I think Orwell is an absolute genius because when he writes this book, he's in the middle of this brand new uh, powerful form of propaganda that had been put out by the, uh, the Nazi state and by the Soviet state. And he was perceptive enough to pull all of these elements out and put them in story form for us to look at. So it is a piece of genius on his part. And remember, it's satire. Satire is getting you to see the world the way that I want you to see it. And I just don't think you do. One final Orwellian quote that I want to end on. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not wish to hear. Thanks for being with us today. We'd like for you to tell your friends about us. If you're a regular podcast listener, let them know about the How to Love Lit podcast. Um, also, find out information about us on our howtolovelitpodcast.com page. And if they happen to be reading Animal Farm for school, just text them this episode. We'll catch them up. <laughs> That's right. If they need any help with uh, essay ideas. Anyway, thanks for being with us, and we'll catch you next time. Peace out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 